This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Splann. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Dr. Spencer Barney, FACOG, or Fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Barney received his undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University in 1999 and graduated from the medical school at the University of Utah in 2005. He continued his residency program at the University of New Mexico OBGYN. Dr. Barney provides gynecological services for women during all stages of life and specializes in advanced laparoscopic surgery. He is currently practicing in Salt Lake City, Utah at Old Farm Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Madison, for having me. So for our listeners, today's topic is going to be on telehealth. Um, we're going to focus on OBGYN visits as well as telehealth for pelvic health in the PT realm as well. So we're going to kind of bounce back and forth in regards to what is a prenatal visit look like, and that'll be the bulk of our conversation. We'll also talk about some other topics that work well during telehealth visits, and then we'll kind of branch off and talk a little bit about telehealth with physical therapy right now. So to start off, Dr. Barney, will you kind of give just a brief overview to our listeners, like what is telehealth OB appointments? What does that kind of look like, feel like for the patient? Yeah, I think it's, the first thing people need to know is it is an actual visit. I mean, it's something we're scheduling, something we're doing. It's not an off the cuff, you know, we're going to check on you over the phone, but we're actually meeting with you over the internet, just like we would in person in clinic. And so you'll get a time, you'll get a setup. At least in our office, you'll be contacted about how to log on at that appointed meeting time. You get on your computer or your phone or your tablet, and you'll put in the, the URL, and that'll put in, you into an electronic waiting room that then comes into our clinic. Um, ours is HIPAA compliant, and so it's safe as your data is protected as you're going through there. And I know a lot of people are concerned about that, especially with. Uh, you know, FaceTime and, and uh, Zoom you hear online, other places that, that there may not be that protection. We use a, HIP, a HIPAA compliant uh, medium to, to see patients online. At that time, they'll come in, they'll come into a waiting room, and then uh, I'll welcome them into the actual online office that we have. Um, we try and be as, as timely as we can to get patients in, but obviously if deliveries happen or, or patients go along, then it may be a little bit delayed, but we'll pull them in and then we can talk face-to-face over the computer. Um, at that point, we are able to ask them questions that we have about what's been going on in their uh, pregnancy so far. We're able to answer any questions they have. Uh, we're able to schedule follow-up visits, schedule ultrasounds, uh, and get that all completed at that point. Uh, and it's just nice to be able to do that for patients from the convenience from their own home without having to spend the time driving into clinic, uh, but can do that whenever it's, it's helpful for them. Yeah, I think, you know, during this COVID time, a lot of people switched and started doing more telehealth visits, but I do feel like this is going to open up a new realm for us, not only in, you know, OB, but as well as PT for specifically OB and postpartum patients. You know, if you already have two or three kiddos at home, 
this is going to save a ton of time rather than lugging them into the office, <laughs> sitting in the waiting room, trying to keep them busy, especially like you're saying, things come up in the OB world. And so you could be back a little bit from the actual scheduled time. And if you're sitting at home, that's a lot more convenient than sitting in a waiting room in, an, in a clinical office. And so my hope with this moving forward is for individuals to gain the information about you know, how awesome telehealth is and that it is a complete visit. You're not, you know, going to lose that much from not going into the clinic um, and continue during this time to keep yourself at a low, you know, risk in regards to um, any infection, which is really, really nice. Exactly. Yeah. And it's been a nice, a nice transition for our clinic. We've just been doing it since coronavirus started, but I think uh, patients have really enjoyed the option at least to be able to, to do that from a remote site. Yep. And I hope too now this allows people in more rural areas to seek consultation rather than wait and wait until it's in dire need um, because the drive's not going to be a, a barrier anymore. Um, and so my hope, especially for pelvic PT, is, you know, Salt Lake treats a vast area from rural Utah that will just come into the city for annuals and things like that and then they're back at their at their home and hopefully this will help to maybe bridge that gap of care and be able to continue that even when they can't be in Salt Lake City. I agree with that. Great so now we're going to kind of jump into exactly what an OB visit looks like at home. Um, kind of what different measurements and technology the user and patient will be having, um, how that helps our doctors to interpret how our pregnancy is going. Um, so Dr. Barney, if you want to kind of dive in and discuss exactly what an OB visit with telehealth is comprised of. You bet. Thank you. And I think it changes a little bit. And with what's going on now with coronavirus and what may happen long term as we uh, continue this forward after this pandemic's over. Um, the equipment we like to have so the patients have at home at a minimum is a scale so they can check their weight, a blood pressure cuff so they can check their blood pressure, and a fetal Doppler to check the, the baby's heart rate. And then some clinics are doing more and, and doing measurements of, of the, the uterus and checking urine uh, for protein and for sugar. Uh, but initially right now, there's been a shortage of some of those supplies even. And so I, just briefly, during coronavirus, as people are waiting to get supplies, we're doing some telehealth visits even without any equipment. We just want to make sure that the patient's baby is moving fine, they're feeling good movements, make sure they're not having some concerning symptoms like excess swelling or headaches or pain in certain parts of the body. And if they're waiting for their equipment and we can go over those and they feel confident that, that they're doing okay, then we can even uh, complete some of those visits without any equipment at all in the meantime during this pandemic when supplies are short. Long term, definitely those other uh, equipment uh, things will be very helpful to get those. So Dr. Barney, let's maybe jump into first, what is a Doppler? What is the patient using it for to start? So Doppler is a device that's used to help listen to the baby's heartbeat. It uses Doppler waves, which is like a type of sound wave that then goes through, through the abdomen, hits the baby, and then it detects movement. And so the heartbeat, blood vessels detect movement, and then that reflects back, and the, the machine picks that up and registers it as a sound that comes out. And you can tell how fast the baby's heart rate is. Uh, 
in using that, hopefully when you picked up your Doppler, you got some gel with it, a Doppler gel. Uh, if you didn't, you can use like KY Jelly, you can buy at the store and that works just as well. But you want some sort of liquid medium between the Doppler transducer and your belly because any air in between there decreases that, that signal of that sound that comes out and makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to hear the baby's heartbeat. You don't need a whole lot, but you need a little bit on the end of that transducer just to make that sound wave travel correctly. That's a good one because I know currently I'm doing OB visits via telehealth and I got my Doppler without one. And so as I was waiting to get some um, shipped to my house, I was thinking, oh, what else could I use? And one thing that came to mind was aloe vera. I was like, oh, that might be the right consistency. It's gel-like. It's not too thick. It's also not too watery. Um, so that's, that's probably another option that people can use, especially at this time of year that they might have around their house. And it's probably not flying off the shelves like some of the other <laughs> medical supplies might be. <laughs> right, yeah, and most any gel, I think, will work to transmit that sound. But as long as you have something in there that, that does that. Perfect. Um, and then... It also, in addition to just transmitting the sound, I think the gel helps make it easier to hear because if you don't have enough gel, then you'll get a very raspy sound as you're listening for the baby's heartbeat. And a lot of interference makes it harder to hear, especially early in pregnancy when the baby's heartbeat is a lot quieter. Um, as it gets bigger and the heartbeat's stronger, then it's, it's much easier. Um, finding the heartbeat is usually not too difficult. It's definitely harder the earlier on pregnancy because that baby's heart is very small and you've got to try and find that very small area on your, on your stomach. So generally what I tell people when they're looking for their heartbeat is they, when they're in that first or second, early second trimester, it's going to be low in their pelvis, just a little bit above the pubic symphysis, which is that bone that runs right along the base of the pelvis. You put a little bit of gel on the transducer, you put that on your belly, and then you have to use kind of slow movements. If you're moving around really quick trying to find this baby, then you'll pass right over it and not even hear it. But if you start right in the midline, a centimeter or two above the pubic symphysis, and just kind of move it up and down slowly, left to right slowly, you'll use be able to find it. Often before 12 weeks, it's much more difficult. After 12 weeks, it gets easier. Definitely after 16 weeks, it's much easier for patients to find. Um, and as that baby gets bigger, obviously you're gonna go up higher and higher to find that. And by the late second trimester, early third trimester, I kind of tell people to go maybe an inch or two below their belly button, same thing, kind of put gel on the transducer, put it in the middle of their stomach, or if they know the baby's on one side or the other, because they can off at that point feel where the baby's sitting, put it just to the left or the right of, of that mid line in their, in their belly and can listen and hear the heartbeat used on either side there. And the Doppler that we're currently using, it will show the real-time heart rate as well. So once you kind of have it hovered in the right spot for a long enough period of time, it's actually going to produce the beats per minute, which is really nice. And remind me, Dr. Barney, what is the range that we are hoping to be reading from that Doppler for beats per minute? So anywhere as low as 110 up to 160 is normal. Most babies hover around the 130s to 150s, but, but they can be a little bit outside of that. And you talked about that range. Uh, most Dopplers nowadays do have that number on there that the patient can see, and it's just easy to read. But the heart rate will jump around. Babies' heart rates are not exactly the same. It's not going to say 140 and stay there. And it will jump from 138 to 142 to 140 to 148 and that's okay 
we're just kind of looking at an average in that range and and see where that average kind of lies. And I think one thing that I've noticed too is I'm poking around, the baby will kick. <laughs> It'll kick that little uh, little Doppler head and it's you're like, oh, oh, and then it makes kind of one of those raspy noises. And you're like, well, I know I know you're in there. Where's your heart rate? <laughs> and you'll yeah, and you'll hear movements and turns and kicks. Yeah, and it's kind of fun to hear those different things. And you'll hear different sounds when you do it. Sometimes people are worried it doesn't sound the same way it did in clinic. If you happen to hear right on the baby's heart, you'll get much more of a thump, thump, thump type sound. And if you get the large blood vessel in the baby's spine, you'll hear more of a swishing sound. It's still the same rate. And we're more worried about the rate than the actual sound that, it, that it's making. That makes sense. Yeah, I have really found the Doppler to be super fun. Like outside of just the visits, you can, if you have extra gel, you're like, oh, hey, grandma, you want to hear the heart rate? Or, and so it's kind of an added bonus of doing the telehealth because you have this Doppler at your disposal. And so it's kind of nice if, you know, especially if you're concerned and you're not feeling much movement, um, kind of that rule of threes, you know, three movements every three hours, then, um, having that Doppler is a really nice option to kind of feel around and, and hear the heart rate. And that can be an extra uh, security blanket, so to speak, for those moms out there that might be a little bit more anxious. And I think that goes both ways. One thing I'd mentioned about that is some people get really stressed because they can't find it right away. Hmm. Don't get stressed if you can't find it right away, especially if you feel your baby moving. If your baby's moving, you'll be able to find it. Just take time, use a little more gel, look around your baby may be flipped it may be on the other side it may be a little higher maybe a little lower but make sure that they just take the time to do that and don't get too stressed on the other hand we don't want to be a security blanket where somebody says my baby hasn't moved for the last day and a half but i can hear the heartbeat it's okay that's not always true and so if your baby's not moving even if you can hear the heart rate we'd recommend you be seen usually in a labor and delivery unit so they can check more of a long-term heart rate pattern and make sure the heart rate's okay. And so, yes, it's very reassuring for patients and it's very helpful and very fun. Um, and, and as long as the baby's moving, you hear the heart rate, that's great, but don't take it as itself as the sole marker that everything is okay with the baby. Yeah, that's a very good point to make for sure. Um, okay, so now we've kind of covered the Doppler. Let's maybe dive into the blood pressure. I feel like, you know, a lot of times people think that, oh, blood pressure is super easy to, to measure, <laughs> but, you know, there are a lot of do's and don'ts when it comes to taking your own blood pressure. Will you kind of review those different guidelines with us, Dr. Barney? Yeah, and it's very important you have a normal blood pressure during pregnancy. That's one of the things we're looking for to rule out preeclampsia. Um, and so we want to make sure it's accurate. What I usually tell patients is a lot of little things can bump up your blood pressure. And if you do several things at the same time, you'll get this abnormally high reading that may not be an accurate reading. And so I want to make sure that patients, when they get their blood pressure cuff, I tell them to put it on their arm, sit, it, sit down with a chair that has a back support, have your arms rested on a table so you're relaxed. Keep your legs uncrossed with your feet flat on the floor. And before you do all this, make sure you empty your bladder. Having a full bladder can raise your blood pressure a little bit as well. And then I just have people just sit there at their table with their arms rested and supported for about five minutes. Try not to talk to anybody. Talking, especially while the blood pressure cuff is going off, can increase your blood pressure a few points. And once you've been sitting there with your arms rested and your back supported at the table, then hit that button. It'll read the blood pressure. It'll pull out the number. And, and that is kind of the most accurate way of doing it. 
Um, in pregnancy, most women will sometimes, will often decrease their blood pressure early on, and then it will start to come back up a little bit as they progress their pregnancy. The number we're looking at as far as high for most women is that top number, the systolic, being 140, and the bottom number, the diastolic, being 90. Below that is considered normal. Above that is abnormal. But we're also looking for trends. So if you have a blood pressure that's 90 over 50 when you start your pregnancy and suddenly you're 135 and you're having a headache, you know, we want to know about those changes over time as well. What are some other symptoms of preeclampsia? Just kind of while we're on that subject, because, um, you know, I think those are the, that's kind of the one big scary one in regards to pregnancy that most people have heard about, but maybe don't know exactly what things to be looking out for. And preeclampsia can be a scary thing in pregnancy. It usually is something that happens more commonly later on in pregnancy, as opposed to early in pregnancy, and more commonly in the first pregnancy, or sometimes in people over 35 um, as well. The things you're looking for uh, that we do in clinic is, of course, the blood pressure we just talked about. We're looking for protein in urine. And so that's why pretty much every time you go to your doctor's office, they're going to ask for a urine sample while you're pregnant because they're checking for protein and for sugar. Um, outside of those, increased swelling can happen. That one's a little bit trickier because a lot of people swell during pregnancy and it's hard to know if that's swelling because of preeclampsia or swelling because you're pregnant. But you're looking for kind of excess swelling, especially swelling outside of just the, the feet. When you start getting swelling in your hands, swelling in your face, swelling in other parts of the body, then we want to definitely make sure we're watching that blood pressure and that urine very closely. As preeclampsia is more severe, people develop headaches. Um, again, headaches, unfortunately, are common in pregnancy. A lot of people get dehydrated and get headaches not sleeping as well and get headaches. But if you have a headache and you take some Tylenol and it doesn't get better, or you have a headache in conjunction with vision changes where you're seeing flashing lights or you have that excess swelling, then that can be a sign. And then kind of that, that severe range of preeclampsia, when you get those bad headaches, you can also get pain up under your ribs, especially on your right side, um, when you get very severe type preeclampsia. So any pain up under your ribs on that right side with those other symptoms we want to watch for. Again, unfortunately, a lot of babies kick right up under that rib too. And so you have to determine, is that that baby kicking again? And that's why it's sore or is there something else going on? But definitely for any, any concern about any of those things, call your provider, ask them, see if you need to be seen uh, in clinic to evaluate that more. Great. Thank you for that rundown. Um, yeah. So the urine samples are looking at protein. And then what else are those urine samples looking at? Uh, glucose. And so it's kind of a screen for preeclampsia, the, the protein portion of it, and then a screen for diabetes, that's the sugar portion of it. And, and that's really the two things that, that we check for every time you come into clinic. Perfect. And then, of course, we have our scale that we're looking for, our, our nice healthy weight gain. So what would you say, you know, on average, obviously, we know that it's going to fluctuate with pregnancies, with, you know, if you're having the gestational diabetes or not. Um, but on average, what are we kind of looking for weight gain, maybe second trimester and then moving into the third trimester? Okay. And I just, and then what I usually tell people is over pregnancy. For me, normal weight gain over pregnancy for someone who starts average weight is usually between 25 to 30 pounds. If you start pregnancy a little bit overweight, then you usually gain a little bit less than that. Um, if you start underweight, then you may gain a little bit more than that, but probably averages about 25 to 30 pounds over the course of the pregnancy. 
and about a third of that's in the first half of pregnancy. So between the, when you get pregnant to the time you hit that 20 week mark, that halfway point or a little bit thereafter, you can expect between a five to 10 pound weight gain. And then in the second half of pregnancy, between 20 weeks to delivery, you expect two thirds of that or another you know, 10 to 20 pounds of weight gain. And a lot of that you're gonna notice in those last, especially six to eight weeks. And it's not uncommon in those last you know, month or two to be gaining a pound a week as that baby gets better, bigger, there's more fluid, um, you're getting extra blood volume in preparation for delivery, you're getting more swelling, um, in, you know, retaining more water, and so you'll notice more weight gain the further along you get. Yeah, I think, you know, some people can be very sensitive to the weight gain. I think just understanding that the weight gain that's occurring, more of it has to do with what you just spoke to, you know, the uterine weight as the uterus is, is getting larger. The placenta. The placental weight, yeah, the, the water, the blood volume that you're creating. Um, and, and so, you know, we know baby average, we have seven and a half pounds, but then the other you know, about 20 pounds there are, are all these other components of, of pregnancy. And so um, it's not just weight, they're, they're going into certain components. And so to not over um, hyper focus on that number, I think is really important for women that might already be at a slight um, sensitivity to weight gain. Right. And, I'm, and I think I'd be less worried about the exact weight gain and more about general health. If you have a low carb or a healthy diet and you're exercising four or five times a week and you're doing everything you can to stay fit if you get a little bit more weight gain i'm not as worried about it as opposed to someone who says yeah i can exercise i'm sitting at home my baby wants potato chips every day so that's what i eat and they're gaining more weight that's more concerning both for their personal health as well as for the baby's health because they're getting the same nutrients you are. And so it's more important to me that you have a healthy diet, that you're exercising regularly, than the absolute weight gain that you have during your pregnancy. Got it, got it. All right, so now kind of talking about weight, it kind of helps us segue into uterine size, because in the clinic, that is something that you are measuring at every visit. Um, so for those individuals that might have that option, or maybe, you know, I know that the... Um, there's like specificity when it comes to stats in regards to this measurement aren't like the most, aren't the highest in that regards and um, the ability to reproduce and measure correctly and all of that isn't great. So I know that not very many places are using that measurement with telehealth due to that lack of ability to really find the top of the uterus and the pubic bone effectively. But you know, just for those women that are a type A personality like myself and want to make sure that we're doing everything, how would you describe that measurement and what are we looking for with that? Yeah, so and usually don't start that measurement until somebody's about 20 weeks, about halfway along in their pregnancy. Before that, the uterus is a lot smaller, it's much harder to feel, harder to measure, and so I wouldn't stress about it until you get about halfway along. At 20 weeks, your uterus is about the level of your belly button most of the time. And you can feel as you push down your stomach using kind of that hard ball inside of there, and that's the uterus, and you're feeling for the top of that. The, the measurement goes from the pubic symphysis, so that bone right at the lower part of your, your pelvis you can feel, and you put the, the, measure, the measuring tape on there, and it's measured in centimeters, not inches, and you measure from that pubic symphysis up to the top of what you feel is that uterus. The general rule of thumb is that after 20 weeks, that uterine measurement matches the centimeter measurement about one to one. 
So at 20 weeks, you're 20 centimeters. At 28 weeks, you're 28 centimeters. Um, and that can fluctuate, they say, by up to about two centimeters and still be considered normal. Now, people that stress about it, of course, everybody's a different size. And you have to take that into account to the measurements. And so I use more that that 20 week mark as a baseline. So if at 20 weeks, that's when you most people get their ultrasound to look at the fetal size as well. And if your baby's measuring normally on ultrasound, then you know everything's growing appropriately. And if your uterus on the measurement you get measures 25 centimeters, that's okay, you should use that as your baseline. And then from then on out, about it, it increases about a centimeter per week. And so you'll usually stay several centimeters ahead of what you think you should be. And that's again, based on patient size, and we're all a little bit different, and that's okay. Um, but you have to take that into consideration as, as you're doing that measurement. Great, that makes sense. All right, so we've kind of gone over a lot of the stuff that we do during a telehealth OB visit. What visits in regards to prenatal care do the patients have to actually come into the clinic for? So we usually like to see people early on to get their baseline blood work. I think most obstetricians offices do the same and midwife offices do the same blood type panel at the beginning of pregnancy. And so you need to be seen to get your blood work done to make sure you're healthy, make sure there's uh, no concerns uh, for your health during pregnancy. And that will include your blood pressure check there in clinic. It'll include a urine test more than just that that glucose and protein we talked about earlier, we actually check for usually bacteria that very first visit. And so we want a, an in-clinic in uh, sample. We'll check your, your other um, medical history to make sure there's nothing else concerning we need to talk about. And we should do an ultrasound early on to make sure the baby's growing okay, make sure we can see or, or hear heartbeat before you'll be able to hear it with the Doppler at home. And so that first visit's an important one. And some doctors do that. If, if your doctor doesn't do the very first visits uh, in office, usually within the first one or two months, they will. We then wanna do a visit around 20 weeks uh, to get the ultrasound. And that's kind of the important time to get that growth ultrasound for the baby. The range is usually between 18 to 22 weeks, kind of uh, closer to 20 you get, the better it is because the baby's big enough, the organs are large enough. We can see what we need to see. Um, on those ultrasounds and make sure the heart's developing normally and the kidneys are normal and the growth is normal. Um, and for different clinics, that's sometimes done in the clinic. For ours, it's done at a remote site. And so we still, with telehealth, are helping to schedule that uh, ultrasound visit remotely. And then we'll do a telehealth visit usually a couple days after that to talk about the results of that ultrasound and make sure that there's no questions about what happened. After that, we need to do a visit around 26 to 28 weeks to do a diabetes test that we usually do for everybody in pregnancy. And then at 36 weeks, or 35 to 36 weeks for what's called a group B strep test, which is a bacterial screen of the vagina to make sure there's no bacteria that are gonna cause problems at the time of delivery. And those are the, the very important ones to come in for and make sure we get the information we need. Outside of that, if there's any concern you have at home, um, especially if there's anything we see on the numbers you give us during telehealth, your blood pressure seems a little bit higher. You are doing urine tests at home and you're getting more protein, you're getting more sugar. Um, then we'd want to be able to see you in clinic. If, you know, there's things like we talked about earlier, if the baby's not moving well, if you're having more contractions, uh, then we we'll want you to be seen. And usually that would be, we'd say, you know, go into labor and delivery, let's get things checked out. Make sure you're not in preterm labor. Make sure the baby's doing all right. There's good oxygenation and blood flow through the placenta. Um, and then some follow-up things we can test for. We talked earlier about other signs of preeclampsia. 
if your blood pressure is getting a little bit higher, we may want to do some extra lab work to make sure that some of the things we can test for with liver function, kidney function, um, and protein are staying in a normal range. And then we can check for reflexes, things like that. That can also be a sign of worsening preeclampsia that would require an in-office visit. Great. And then what do you feel like is lost by performing telehealth visits for our prenatal population? I mean, in some sense, I think you, it's, although it's personal because we're seeing people, we're talking to them face to face, it's not quite the same interaction. And so I think there is some just of that personal medical interaction that we started medicine for and the thing we like to do that, that's missing because you don't get to chat with the patient as much about what's going on with them and, and their family or or things outside of the pregnancy. I think there's also what I would guess call, I guess, a medical gestalt as far as things that I may notice that they may not say over the telehealth visit. I might notice a little bit of swelling that they didn't think was a big deal. I might um, notice uh, the way they're walking, the way they're moving that may give me ideas about maybe they're having more pain they're not telling me about. And I think you would probably have that same thing. I would think of physical therapy, seeing the gait, seeing how they move, that you can do a lot of physical therapy remotely, but there's things you see that you pick up on that you just don't get over a telehealth visit. Very, very true. I think, you know, I've, I've kind of found some different gains, but yeah, I would agree. Not being able to see the patient is, is, you, you do lose something in that regards, but I think in the amount of things that we gain, it's 100% worth it. Yeah. So besides prenatal um, visits, what other visits are you performing via telehealth at this point in time? There's several other things. The ones we're probably doing most commonly, we're doing preconceptual counseling, patients that want to get pregnant and want to talk about risks for them before they get pregnant. We're doing birth control counseling for people that want to start on birth control. We can do a lot of the counseling remotely over telehealth. We can do several prescriptions remotely. If it requires an implant like an IUD or an explant, then they obviously have to come back in a clinic to get that. But we can at least talk about the risks of the different birth controls, uh, things that might be working for them over, over telehealth visit. We do urinary tract infections best we can, especially initial visits. If there's recurrence, we usually want to come back in for testing. Same thing for vaginal infections. Um, menopausal symptoms, uh, PCOS, heavy periods, painful periods. We can often start uh, an evaluation with telehealth, try some treatments. If they don't work, they won't have them follow up. Probably the biggest one I think right now, especially during the coronavirus time, is depression and anxiety because there's a lot more of that with what's happening. And that is something that is very helpful to be able to have quick access to patients talk to them about their concerns, help them find counseling if they need it, help them get resources, start medication if necessary, and be able to do that over a telehealth visit. So that's, I think, increased quite a bit over the last couple months. Outside of that, things that I don't know that we will do long-term, but we do over the coronavirus time when we're trying to keep people safe and keep them home, are things like follow-up visits, IED follow-ups to make sure their IEDs doing okay after placement, uh, surgery post-op checks, if the patient's doing fine at home, doesn't have a fever, doesn't have any pain, we can talk about it and sometimes even try and look at their incision over a telehealth visit. And same thing with the six-week postpartum checks. We're doing a lot of those um, remotely also. That's what I'm really interested to see in regards to physical therapy. 
um, telehealth was not an option pre-COVID for physical therapy, period. Um, and then thankfully Medicare jumped on board and as most providers understand, once Medicare does something, all the rest of the insurances jump exactly, on board. Exactly, yeah. So that's been a blessing for sure. Um, our hope is, you know, once they've granted it, that they won't rescind it, but we'll kind of see what happens with that. Um, but I'm, my, I'm hopeful that our ability with, especially the postpartum population when, you know, they are six weeks, but maybe they're having that, that diastasis that's really noticeable, or they're having C-section scar pain, um, but coming into the clinic because they have three or four kids at home isn't obtainable. Um, my hope moving forward is that we can still have some of these visits with women, discuss options of, of how they can work on their own scar or a safe return to exercise program if they do have a diastasis, we'll count of the do's and the don'ts and being able to demonstrate different exercises and what they should feel and what they should look like. Um, you know, I think a lot of patients with telehealth in general are very skeptical at first, um, especially with physical therapy, because a lot of people associate physical therapy with physical touch, being able to feel the tissues uh, that might be causing the pain or the dysfunction occurring. Um, and I just want to express to all the listeners out there that it is a very viable option to have physical therapy. I've treated, I've done an evaluation for pelvic pain, um, painful intercourse over a telehealth visit and have done weekly follow-ups with this patient and have been able to go over, um, you know, self-vaginal stretching, um, initiation of dilator training, um, education on topical lidocaines, um, positioning, different stretches, and you know those stress urinary incontinence patients there are a lot of different devices that you can get at home that can help you to strengthen the pelvic floor without coming into the clinic and getting that you know one-on-one -on -one treatment we're definitely missing the awesome biofeedback visual cueing component um, but i do feel like with the different weights that are out there on the market having that tactile cue with the telehealth has been super um, effective with patients. And so I'll have them, you know, go out, get the, put the weight in, come back into field division, and then we'll go through different exercises with having those weights in um, that are more functional. And, you know, can you cough and keep the weight in? Can you squat? Can you lift baby? And so there are still a lot of functional activities that can be completed via telehealth um, with physical therapy as well. And so my hope moving forward, especially reaching out for pelvic pain patients. I mean, I have some that drive from Evanston into Salt Lake for treatment for pelvic pain um, because, you know, we're few and far between, especially in rural areas. And so my hope is seeing the success now with telehealth that maybe this will open doors for these other women that might be having pelvic floor dysfunction in rural areas and not um, it's not feasible to drive in two, three hours once a week to have the treatments, but um, still having that one-on-one -on -one time once a week with the PT to ask questions, to progress exercises. Um, and, and it's a little bit easier to have partners in on the visit as well when it's via telehealth and um you know i've been working with a woman who is you know 
30 weeks pregnant and she's having some pain. We started in the clinic, COVID happened. Um, and due to risk factors, she's no longer coming to the clinic. And so I was able to actually have a visit with her and her husband and show her husband different pressure points to open up the pelvis, um, different soft tissue techniques that he can use to help, you know, with pain relief techniques. Um, and so I, I feel like it's opened the doors in a lot of different senses to where, you know, having partners come into physical therapy appointments aren't always feasible. Schedules are different. Um, and so being able to meet during a time when everybody's at home and be able to show and demonstrate has really been a benefit that wouldn't have happened without telehealth. And so I do think that it's really opened the door here. And I agree with that. And we've seen the same thing. I mean, we've had to limit access to clinic because, again, coronavirus, we couldn't have spouses come in. And so you were able to have spouses do the televisit with their, their partner. Um, and that's been very helpful. I think that we feel like we lose some things, again, with those interactions. With postpartum visits, so we like to check the uterine size. We like to check the blood pressure, make sure it's okay. So for patients that haven't been doing telehealth, we don't have access to that, to that blood pressure cuff. People have been doing it already they have that equipment at home and they can check their blood pressure. They can let us know how it is. And as long as their bleeding is okay and their pain's okay, um, the, that follow-up is helpful. And nationwide, I think they say that up to 40% of women don't go to their, their postpartum visit, which to me was somewhat astounding. But I think we could correct a lot of that by allowing these telehealth type visits for women that otherwise wouldn't show up, but that are willing to get online and, and talk to you and make sure that they're doing okay, that they're, both their physical health, but also their mental health is okay. Cause that's a, a pregnancy can take a big toll on women and mental health becomes a, a big issue during pregnancy and especially after pregnancy. And we want to make sure that they get all the care they need and have access to that. Um, however, however they can. And the nice thing with telehealth is, I mean, you can do it as if you have a smartphone, you can do it from your phone. The biggest thing is you just have to be on a device with a camera. I think a lot of people, uh, hyper focus on oh I don't have a tablet I don't have a computer with a camera I'm like but you have a do you have a phone okay so that's been really really helpful I mean I've treated women during this time from age 75 to 25 so there is no age barrier um, you know I think there's always a little bit of a struggle sometimes in the beginning getting connected and once it's there and you kind of get in the routine it it goes by simple and I think we've really broken some fears from our patients that were worried about the telehealth and their age and not being able to figure out the technology um, and so it's pretty user-friendly overall. Yeah, and not only from a home, but it allows patients the flexibility of doing it from anywhere. I have I have patients now doing the telehealth therapy visits from the office. They, you know, they're working at their computer. We usually have them check their blood pressure and their the baby's heart rate and their weight. You know, earlier on in the day, they have those numbers written down. They'll walk into the break room when when it's time for telehealth visit. They get on. We talk. We do the visit. I've had moms that are taking their kids out. You know not at parks right now because they're closed, but you know, out to different places where they're looking at sites, they're going on a drive and they'll just pull the car over and you'll see them in the car doing their, their OB visit when they've done this stuff at home. And it really frees them up to do other things with their family as well, rather than have to drive in the clinic. Oh, that's such a good point. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Yeah. You don't have to be at home. You could be anywhere and do your health <laughs> visits. That's a very good point. Yeah. And so I'm curious what you think with, you know, Obviously, COVID will be around for a little bit longer until the vaccine comes, but um, do you feel like once the COVID hype ends that you'll 
see the trend of telehealth decline again? Or do you think that, you know, medicine as a whole might begin to utilize this option more and patients might ask about it more moving forward? And I think it's, it goes back to what you said earlier. I think it goes to, to what it appears we call insurance providers. Because before this, most insurance providers did not cover visits, um, especially those UN ones we talked about, the, the painful intercourse, the menopause, the birth control. You wouldn't, your insurance wouldn't cover that visit if you did it over telehealth. So then the patient would be responsible for paying for the visit outside of what they're already paying for their insurance. And, and nobody wants to have to do that. And so right now it's great. It's opened up a lot of options to trial this and see how it works and finding that it does seem to be very helpful for patients. I'm hoping that pairs will see that and will make some adjustments going forward after this coronavirus time's over to leave that as an option. I think there are things you have to be worried about. You talked about patients from Evanston um, and I just don't, I don't know how physical therapy is as far as medicine. We're not allowed to treat people outside of state, state, state lines. And so we can't treat someone from Ev Evanston unless I have a license in Evanston. I can't, and I have patients in Elko that I can't do telehealth with them, even though I would love to, and it's very convenient for them because they're in a different state and I don't have a license in Nevada to practice medicine. Um, and so people in Wendover, I'm fine with, because if they're on the Utah side of Wendover, they're, they're within state boundaries. I have people from you know, Delta and Ogden that are doing telehealth and it's great for them. But there are legal issues as well that we will have to kind of look at how that changes over time. If we can get more cooperation from bordering states to allow this to happen uh, and make it more convenient. But definitely for, like you said earlier, finding childcare when you have three kids at home already and you're trying to go and do a visit, when you're trying to get time off work, when you're trying to drive three hours to get a visit, save cost on gas and, and missed work, all those things are so helpful that if if insurance carriers allow it, I think the patients will probably seek out more of this over time, having tried it now. Yeah, that's my hope. And yes, PT is kind of bound to the same issues in regards to the state line as, as you are. And so you actually brought up a good point with the driving portion, you know, that you might not have to make it all the way into Salt Lake. If you just <laughs> right. cross that border, we're good to go. Exactly. Yes. And I've, I've thought <laughs> about that. If, around. So if you're doing it from your phone and you can drive from Elko into, you know, just the Utah border, then we're set. Then, then we're covered, covered legally. Yep. But we can uh, work around those insurance nuances. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Dr. Barney, as we're coming to a close, um, what would be the one thing that you hope listeners really take away from this podcast? I hope they just get a sense that they can take, uh, take over their care and make sure that they're seeking kind of what they want. Make sure they don't feel left behind. Make sure they reach out for the services they need. Um, know that at least for now, these things are available and ask their, their physician or their midwife if, if they're available in their particular area, especially if this is something that would be helpful for them. I have patients that go both ways. We've offered to everybody that's come in and we have patients say, you know what? I feel much more comfortable being here in clinic. I really don't want to do this from home. We say, that's fine. Come in. And we have people say, oh, thank you for doing this. This is so much more convenient to be at home. And, and just seek out those, those things that are helpful for you. Make sure you take advantage of your care. Make sure you're open to asking questions. That's what we're here for. If you have any questions, call the clinic. Make sure you get follow-up. Make sure that you don't feel like you're doing, especially these pregnancy things on your own. First-time moms I know feel so stressed because they feel like they don't know what is happening. They don't know what what's going to happen next. Ask. And, and that's, that's what we're here for in, in medicine. Great. 
Well, in closing, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Barney for coming on the show today. And Dr. Barney, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Yeah, and thanks again for having me on. This has been a great experience. Um, my clinic number is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Just call and, and ask to talk to, to one of the nurses. Usually they'll send you to first, ask, ask questions. And, and if they can, then they'll get you in touch with me. And that number is 801-261-3605. We're part of the Old Farm OBGYN group. Great. So thank you again for listening. And please tune in next month for a topic on pelvic health and menopause with Dr. Jennifer Norris. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.